Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is producer Doug. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing really well. Thank you. Good. Well, Christopher, we, things are starting to open up again. Yeah, in many ways, right? You know, the, yes. the the stores are opening, there's more people on the roads and I think our our psyches are beginning to open because of it. I think it's been it's been good to be able to get out a little bit more and see people. You know, <laughs> in person. Yeah, and totally. Socially distanced, of course, but Of course. Yes. But, but also um, but you know, it's also good to get out and see nature. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And it's been lovely weather. We're fine. I think winter is finally beyond us. And we've had some nice days. Some days have been rather warm. <laughs> we had a heat already. wave. Yeah. It was it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and and in and in my house we adopted a puppy along the way. Oh, that's right. How is Lola doing? Lola, the dog, she is she is getting used to us, and we are getting used to her. <laughs> For our listeners, she's a two year old uh, lab uh, Labrador pit bull mix, and she's she's rather large. She's about seventy one pounds. Um, so we've been getting out a lot because she needs her exercise (laughs) or she'll tear our house apart. (laughs) Well, that's, I think that's so great when people adopt dogs, you know, me, um, and I've met her briefly. She is, she's a sweet, sweet personality. So I'm pleased for her and I'm pleased for the, for your entire family, even if she eats you out of house and home, which she might, which she might. (laughs) (laughs) She's a lot of fun, but we've been we've been getting her on some hikes, yeah. kind of getting her used to the area. And right. um, we were up. One of the first places we went was Parker Lake, which is a smaller lake off of the June Lake Loop. For those of you who listeners who aren't familiar with the area, and it's one of the prettiest lakes that you can visit, and that was really fun. That's just north of that June Lake turnoff, right? Yeah. So if you take if you get off at the north June the north end of the June Lake loop, if you turn off of three ninety five there, and you you'll pass the sign, you know, for Silver Lake, and then you see a dirt road turn off to the trailhead for Parker, and you right. can actually take that trailhead and hike to Silver Lake. Also, it's a, a little bit longer way to get to Silver Lake. Um, Beautiful, yeah. So, and we've also visited Silver Lake and did some fishing, and that was Lola's first encounter with deer. <laughs> How'd she do? She. She did okay. She all the first time she saw them, they're they're very uh stealth stealthy creatures. 
and they were kind of hidden. And then all of a sudden they heard her and they popped up and scared the hell out of me. (laughs) And uh, she kind of took off and almost took my arm with her. Um, But she did fine. She, she was respectful and, you know, didn't, she was kind of like, what are these things? They're not dogs. <laughs> Didn't see these in the shelter. No, she did not. So, um, How was the fishing? Fishing was very slow. Um, very, very slow. We, it was the weekend of the opener, right. um, at which they moved up. And, um, but we had a few bites at Silver Lake, and, which was fun, but no, no fish on. We yeah. didn't bring any home that day, but yeah. next time. Well, it was nice to see fisher fishermen, people fishing um, in the various lakes that I've been by in the last uh, week or so, like Crowley Lake and others. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw boats on the lake the other day driving into yes. work. I was like, yeah, okay, it's actually happening, and um, it's such a restful uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people really count on it for their own mental health, so I'm glad it's happening. Yes. And where have you been lately? Where have you gotten out to? Well, we went out and did some wilderness bathing as well. <laughs> That's my new term for the summer. After I being, like it. After being stuck inside the house for eight to ten weeks, it's it's been <laughs> nice to get out. So I, don't, I forget who brought up that term, but we're using it frequently. Um, <laughs> we went up to a lake as well. We went up to uh, South Lake in the Inyo Forest and hiked out a ways on the Bishop's Pass Trail, which is one of my favorite trails in the High Sierra. It's just, it's beautiful. It's scenic. It's kind of moderate. It's got some switchbacks. There were still some snow we had to scramble over. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can just come upon a series of lakes and lakes and lakes and lakes, which, you know, our listeners probably get tired of us referring to all these lakes, but they define our our area here. So, um it's just lovely. And it was a hot day in the valley and it, we were up above nine, 10,000 feet and it was just, it was beautiful. And what was crucial about this experience is it it was pre mosquito season. Oh yes. Very important. Very important for any local who lives up here. They kind of know there's like this brief window. You can kind of get up and hike and enjoy before having to slather yourself in mosquito repellent because they, those things are like, deadly up there oh they're and they bite they create these huge welts right uh, when they bite you exactly so um but it was beautiful we missed all that i'm i'm sure it's changing already um but yeah you know it's just nice and and i think the two things that we just described are they're within driving distance of where we live right you go up and Mm -hmm. do it before breakfast Right. So um, it's nice to have that, but it'll be nice when people who are coming back can can partake of that as well. This is just going to be an odd summer for yeah. how people use the backcountry. Definitely. And it'll be interesting to see how many people do venture up here in the, you know, in the wake of things opening up, you know, if people are going to be as eager to get out or if they're going to be a little shy about doing that. Right. Exactly. I will say it, and you guys may have had a similar experience. It was kind of nice to have most of the trail to yourself. There mm-hmm. were only a, you know, the people aren't technically allowed to drive up here for that kind of stuff. So there are only three or four other groups of people um, right. 
on the day that we were out hiking. Yeah. Uh, the parking lots weren't open. So um, it really kind of felt like we had it to ourselves, which was nice as well. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, I, I hope we are gracious enough that when people do come back and we have to share again, that we, <laughs> we, that we do so with, uh, you know, grace and generosity. <laughs> no, get off my lawn for us. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No, we will, of course. But it was it was a wonderful, wonderful day out, and I'm sure it was for you guys as well. Yeah, it was it was great. So, listeners, get ready. We're we're getting ready to have more adventures and be out there again. And we hope to hear from you and see what you've been doing as things open up and what you're up to. So, take a deep breath, and we'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless. Odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number 8 and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, Oxygen Starved listeners. We are at the B section of our podcast, the books section, which is yes. um, always an important section for us, right, Stacy? Yeah. Yep. Always a favorite. And so this particular podcast, Stacy and I and Doug chatted quite a bit about what we wanted to talk about today because current events, as we all know, have, have really taken uh, center stage in everything that we talk about right now. And so we pivoted before recording to really talk about um, some books and authors that are informing this moment for a lot of people around racism, uh, white privilege, police brutality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Stacey, I was thinking about this a lot in the last couple of days, you know, we're recording this, um, after the incident, the, the death or, or the killing of George Floyd mm -hmm. in Minnesota. And of course, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Ahmed Arbery, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Michael Garner. This just goes back and back mm -hmm. and back. And this isn't ancient history. This is recent history. This right. is within the last decade. And I I don't know what it is, but this this moment feels different to me. It feels like more people are taking it seriously. And I don't know if it's just the divisiveness in our culture right now or that we've all been locked up navel gazing for eight weeks yeah. or, or what? I don't know if you have any thoughts I, about it. I definitely think the fact that we have been required to be cooped up, you know, for health reasons for as long as we have, have played into mm -hmm. the, the feeling about what's going on now and the vitriol that we've seen. Um, I think that definitely plays into it. I also think that the, you know, the social media and the fact that we're, we're not just seeing this on television in the nightly news, but we're seeing reactions and 
um, results of what has happened 24 seven through our computers and our phones. And it's all, you can't escape it. It's all over the place. And what was, what has been, um, interesting to me is the need for adults to talk about this and process what's going on. Right. Um, you know, we saw this earlier in our, our executive cabinet meeting that we had, um, you know, where our team, you know, we, we needed to definitely pivot from the agenda and just kind of talk about how we were feeling about everything that was going on. And, um, you know, I think it's something that because of the social media aspect, our kids are see are more exposed right. to what's happening. And I think that exposes a couple of challenges, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, when this thing happened, to give it some context, you know, one of the things that public libraries do in times of crises is step up with whatever they can. And often... Mm-hmm. That's a room for people to come in and meet and converse around the issue on. Right. Today, that can't happen because we're all right. closed. But you know, many public libraries in the last week have been putting out resource lists, lists of books mm-hmm. for adults, books for yeah. teens, books for children, websites, authoritative sources that people can, who are seeking to understand the situation better can, can use. And that's something that's kind of in our nature is like, how can we be right. constructive and not reactive about this because social media and pundits on news channels, regardless of what news channel you're watching, you know, they're giving you sound bites. They're giving you right. emotion. They're not yes. necessarily giving you the information, a full context information that you really need to reflect on and talk about with others to, to really be able to understand what your thoughts are because that's what they want to do. They want to stir up emotion rather right. than understanding. And it's, it's what we do with that emotion and how we navigate it that, that counts in these right. situations. Yeah. And those resource lists that you see out, you know, we posted them on our library website. We have them on our office of education page. Um, you know, there are, a, there are a whole bunch of different sites that you can, you know, our listeners can go to, um, to get additional information. Um, and I encourage you to do that before you talk to your kids so that you have some facts and some context to help provide your children because kids are going to be, they're going to see what's going on. It's going to cause them fear and anxiety. You have to kind of expect that. And when you're talking to your kids, honor that that's the way that they're feeling and, um, you know, provide them with, with facts and, and tools to, you know, help, help them stand up to, to racism and injustice and why it's so important that they do that. Right. Cause it starts early, right? This, yes. this behavior of, of racism you know, some of it comes, you know, as you're being raised, you know, and, the, mm-hmm. and how you're educated or how you interpret your education or the culture around you. And, you know, one of the things that this this week has made me think about, um, again, a constructive use of a, a reaction is a few years back, uh, a 
group of people who were authors and illustrators of children's books started a movement called We Need Diverse Books. Mm -hmm. And it was literally because there were so few children of color or disability um, reflected in children's books. And I recently right. saw a, I recently saw a statistic that you know, after white kids, there are more children's books published with animals as characters than children of color. Oh my and, gosh. Right. And that's just not how our society is. No. And in fact, the vision statement of We Need Diverse Books, which started, I think, about six years ago and now is a proper nonprofit. I encourage mm -hmm. you to seek them out. Their vision statement is there should be a world in which all children can see themselves in the pages of a book because that's where it starts. Right. Right. So, um, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot and, you know, we talked about, we shared, um, a new resource that has come up mm -hmm. in the last week that I just learned about yesterday, the national museum of African American history and culture, which is part of the Smithsonian museum in Washington, DC has just put out a terrific website called talking about race. Yeah. It's, we'll, it's really good. <laughs> we will put the link up on the portal, yeah. but but it, it speaks to everything you just said, Stace. Like, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm not a parent, but, you know, you got to kind of understand, educate yourself a little bit to talk about it with kids, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and on this website, they have all these different topics related to race. So, you know, whether that's bias or race and racial identity or the foundations of race, um, it's just really well curated. And, you know, there's... There is something for every, every topic. There's information, um, factual information about that issue. Right. And a lot of it is not like super duper scholarly stuff right. written in yeah. $10 words. It's a lot of them yeah. are TED Talks and, mm -hmm. and things that people are, that are really designed to be approachable to the average parent or the average right. teacher um, or someone who just wants to self-educate, which again, I, as a librarian, I think is, is really important. So um, yeah. I thought what I would do, Stace, right now, since we're going to talk about mm -hmm. books, yes. <laughs> is the library, Mono County Library. And we should contextualize this. The three of us on this podcast are white people living mm -hmm. in living in a rural part of the country that has precious few African-Americans right. living here. Yeah. Um, and which is a unique kind of situation to be in. Um, but the library recently put out some books on its social media uh, feed. Um, and that, so that post has the response to that has been beyond what we normally get. And so it's awesome. resonating. It's resonating even here in this remote part of the country. Yeah. And I've had, I've had people saying, thank you for doing this. So um, I'm just going to talk of, about a few of those books, and then we will link to that post in our show notes as well. Perfect. So, um, and I'm reading one of the books myself. I'm, I'm in the middle of it, and I'll do that one last. But a couple of them that I just want to highlight, um, there's a book called, and these are all recent books within the last few years. There's a book called Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. It's by Ibram Gendi. And Jason Reynolds, the popular young adult author, mm -hmm. it's, it's adapted for teens from Jendi's National Book Award winning Stamped from the Beginning, where he really talks about what it's like to grow up African-American um, and experience racism, both mm -hmm. overt and, and subtle, um, 
as just as a person living in the country. The next next book um, is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. I hope everyone knows who Jacqueline Woodson is. This book is a National Book Award winner. Again, it's a book for young people, and it's poetry. But she does not shy away about from those racist um, right. issues that kids experience. Another author people should seek out is Michael Eric Dyson. He's a speaker. Yeah. He's an he's an academic. Um, he speaks on this and writes on this a lot, and you see him on the TV quite mm-hmm. frequently. And the book that he had m- most recently, I think, is Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Um, and he really is kind of one of those voices up front saying, you know, you, white Americans need to stop and reflect. Um, you know, don't just react. Don't, you know, fall into the victim. Don't don't deny that it's happening or don't think that you aren't part of the issue. Um you know, you really need to understand it before you arrive at any of those conclusions. Mm-hmm. There's also um, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. She is um, uh, someone who works with organizations who want to put their kind of diversity challenges or diversity requirements in their organization into real practice. So really build an inclusive and equitable environment for people from different backgrounds, ethnicities in organizations of businesses and nonprofits and what have you. A lot Mm -hmm. of us have built diversity into our strategic plans or into our requirements. And it's hard. It's not just something you turn on and it's also not just a box you check as, you know, as an organization, you really have to work at it. And so she's someone who helps people do that. The two other books, um, another one by Ibram Gendi, How to Be Anti-Racist. This came out last year, I think last fall, got a lot of attention. Um, and he was interviewed by the NPR uh, recently when that book came out. And, and one of the comments he said that really stuck with me is uh, here, and I'm quoting him uh, mm-hmm. from the interview, I think the first thing is an anti-racist is looking out upon their society in their everyday life and seeing the racial groups as equal. Someone who is not denigrating or lifting up any particular racial group. Someone who, as they see racial inequity, they're not stating that's the result of a particular racial group's inferiorities, but that that's the result of a racist policies. And I think that's something that, you know, as a white person, I need Mm -hmm. constantly to to put myself in that perspective that, you know, we kind of, without even thinking about it, because we grew up in it, you know, we've grown up in a white dominant society. Right. We just think that that's how the world works. We don't even mm-hmm. recognize that it's white and that um, subconsciously we often think, well, this other racial group is where it is because of some kind of natural inferiority or systematic inferiority. But really what, what he points out is it's policies and, yeah. um, you know, and again, you know, Stacey, you and I were chatting before we talked about this, that um, we all need to look at the policies that we have in our organizations, mm-hmm. but sometimes changing a policy isn't enough. It has to start so much earlier, you know? Right, right. Start- with with our kids, with, yeah. how, you know, how we teach our kids about differences between people and yeah. accepting those differences between people and that, you know, that's, those differences aren't, they're not, 
bad thing. They're a good thing. They're right. what makes our country what it is. And um, yeah, definitely it's, it starts right from the get go. It starts when the child is as young as, you know, as soon as they they start talking, you can start talking to them about this Raced. issue. Yeah. yeah. And it's important, you know, one of the other facts that I find fascinating in the book world is I learned this a few decades, a couple decades ago, but it's still true, is that, you know, school textbooks mm-hmm. are, are written differently in certain portions of this country than they yes. are in other portions of this country. And they, they address racism differently. And I think that would surprise people to understand yeah. if your kid goes to school in Texas and it, and their brother or sister goes to school in California, they may have the same text book from the same publisher, but the contents are actually different. Yes. That, that's like a whole nother podcast topic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I won't go I, down that. I, I can, you know, I, I, have, I have stories about that. But, um, <laughs> but you're right. You know, it is true that that, that, does, that does happen. And, you know, we as you know, the education sector, you know, we need to, to take a role in standing up against that and saying, look, you know, we need to tell everybody the same, we need to give everybody the same information and it's got to be accurate and it's got to be non-biased. And, you know, we need to put all of our efforts into making that happen. But, um, why right. don't you, I, I really want you to talk a little bit about like the most, the book that I'm just can't wait to read, which is called White <laughs> Fragility. I've been waiting for you to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for that lead in. I was just about to get to it because um, this all culminates in that. So from the list that the library posted, the book that I chose to read first, and I think a lot of people right now are reading these books. Apparently the bestseller lists have changed in the last week. So a lot of people are seeking out this information, which is good. I am, I'm reading Robin D'Angelo's book, white fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Like Austin Brown, Robin works with organizations to understand racism and inclusion in their cultures. And this is based on what she's learned over years and years of this work. And I should point out, and I did not know this when I bought the book, Robin D'Angelo is white. So she's writing as a white person um, and talking about white fragility from a point point of authenticity and experience. So one thing that sticks out to me um, that she makes a point of is that many of us white people (laughs) often see racism as a good versus bad thing. And we never, never characterize ourselves as bad, right? Right. So... Um, it stops the conversation in its tracks when we do that, especially among progressive liberal whites. Um, mm-hmm. She says often that they can be the most problematic because they just don't see it in themselves. They only see it in right. others. So I thought that was something to reflect on. And I should mention I'm not done with the book. I've been reading it um, <laughs> in the last couple of days. I've still got a ways to go. So this is just what I've read so far. She also talks a lot about how racism is racism is about control. Um, you know, who controls the media messages, who controls the education of our youth, and the influence that they wield. Mm-hmm. It's about coded messaging. Um, you know, 
decades and decades ago, the racism was really overt in the language that people use to describe black people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to repeat any of those words now, but that has since adjusted over the decades into code words. So busing or mm-hmm. you know other kinds of uh, issues that come up were ways to talk about or to present racist policies in a way that did not overtly seem racist, mm-hmm. kind of whitewash over them, to use a term. And then um, she was the one who really formatted for me that, you know, white dominance is taken for granted. Um, it's not even recognized by whites because it's all we ever know. We just think this, right. is, how, this is how the world works. Sure. And um, one provocative question that she poses, and I, I've had this posed in an equity workshop I went through a few years ago in the Midwest, was when was the first time you had a teacher who was black? Think about, you know, everything from preschool to kindergarten up through your entire education. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you had someone who was African-American or black standing at the front of the room educating you? And my answer was college because yeah. I, I grew up in Bishop in the 70s <laughs> um, and I did not have uh, any African-American teachers growing up. Yeah, I I would say that would I would answer that question the same. I I wasn't until college, and and I I grew up in the Midwest. Right, you grew up kind of near Chicago, right? Right. So yeah. you would I would have thought you know nearer an urban setting, maybe it would have been more diverse, but it just wasn't the case. No, not even not even through high school. Um, right. And um, yeah, it wasn't it and. Yeah, it wasn't until, I think, junior year of college. And so what's important about understanding the answer to that question is, is seeing people instruct us. We Mm -hmm. see people, you know, if we're African-American ourselves, if we're black ourselves, we see a mentor and a role model, someone you can aspire to um, or connect with. And I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And for non-African-Americans, it's understanding that, people of color can be authorities, can yes. be educators. We can learn from them and, and um, you know, validating their education and their experience and their contribution to society. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are all just, I'm reading this book entirely for myself. I'm not trying to preach here. I'm, I'm just trying to understand myself better. I've lived in incredibly diverse um, communities for the last 25, 30 years. And I, I'm still not perfect myself. And, and this last week has really made me investigate my own behaviors more than, than I have in quite some time. Well, and you know, no, nobody is perfect. Nobody is acts appropriately a hundred percent of the time, no matter how much they want to. And I think it's the idea of, taking the steps to um, learn more and become educated and to investigate where what's in your own heart is the place to start. And um, I can't, I, I really can't wait to get started reading this book um, myself. Cause I, I haven't, I haven't started reading it yet, but it's on my to-do list actually for today, just to, help me get a better understanding of 
where where I am, where my own heart is, and then then I can be of a better help to others and you know listen more critically and and helpfully. Um, there is a recently published book that came out that's actually fiction that deals with this issue that um, I'll quickly mention um, if that's okay. Um, and it's called such a fun age and it's by Kylie Reed and it, it's recently published, um, just within the since the beginning of, of 2020. And it tells the story of a young African American woman who's a babysitter for a white family. And she is with the, um, the young children one evening and, is is seen with these kids and then is accused of kidnapping these kids and all of the um all of the I- ideas and all of the these issues of of race and and privilege and um justice are interwoven into this story so if you want to tackle these issues and start thinking about these issues from a fictional perspective I would recommend uh, such a young age, or I'm sorry, I said that incorrectly. Such a fun age. I um, would too. Yeah, that that book got great reviews, and I, you bring yeah. up a great point, Stacy. That um, a lot of people understand issues and develop empathy through fiction mm-hmm. rather than nonfiction, and that's a valid way forward. I would encourage anyone who's listening um, who just feels a little confused or overwhelmed or or wants to understand themselves a little bit better in this whole context or even wants to question our positions, (laughs) um, (laughs) go to your local bookstore, go to your local library. A lot of them may be closed by now, but they're staffed. You can call them up or you can email them and they will connect you to resources, books, websites, websites. and groups of other people who you can kind of process this through with. Uh, a yeah. lot of people are doing this right now, so you're not alone. Right. And um, I just, we would encourage you not to let the moment pass by. Right. And we will post links to all of the resources, websites, and books that we've discussed on our website for you to check out. Hang in there. These are tough times. Talk to somebody if you need to talk and um, stay strong. Stay strong. We'll be right back. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Welcome back, listeners. We're at the C portion of the podcast, The Conversation, where we bring in a local individual who is contributing uniquely to the Eastern Sierra community. And today, we are super excited to have Kendra Atley-Work join us. Who Kendra is, uh, many of you probably know Kendra. She's a local writer, and she has a new memoir coming out this summer that we're going to chat about. So, Kendra, welcome to the podcast. Thank welcome. you. It's great to be here. We're so excited to have you. I know, right? It's great when we have great authors on, and we're getting more of them. So, And yeah. I love that this is a, a more local one, which we'll get into. So, Kendra, can you tell us a little bit about your background and um, where you're from and what brought you to the Eastern Sierra? 
Well, uh, being born in Bishop brought me very directly to the Eastern Sierra. <laughs> yes. Back when the hospital had two rooms in which one could be born. Um, and then I was taken directly to Sunny Slopes, where my parents lived in a little cinder block cabin. And they like to tell about how they didn't really know anything about children. And so they definitely froze me a lot that first fall and winter. <laughs> Um, and they, uh, but yeah, we lived in, we lived in sunny slopes and then we moved even farther back into the woods in Pine Glade. And there's pictures of us, my sister and I being pulled on a sled over snow to get to our house, like sitting on top of the groceries from the car to the house because they don't really plow all the roads back there in Pine Glade. So, um, and then we moved to Swall Meadows. And so, yeah, I, I spent my entire childhood and adolescence in the Eastern Sierra and then went away for school and, uh, lived in, Southern California and lived in Minnesota for a few years and the whole time was kind of scheming about how I could get back. And so, um, I've been back in Bishop now for about two years. Well, welcome back. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did, I did something similar, but I stayed away for a lot longer before I came back, but I certainly understand the pull that, that brings one back. Can you talk a little bit about why you, why you left and what, what kind of motivated you to come back? Yeah, so I I left for college. Um, so I left right after high school, and I went to college in the LA area. And um, I I was really at that time excited to go live in a city. And I thought, you know, malls were really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think I went to one maybe once or twice, and was like, oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I I think it took about I I think most people have a similar experience. It took a couple of years, maybe two years, um, before I realized that I really wasn't a city person and I really wanted to come back. And I just had to figure out how to do that because, you know, you can't, it's kind of hard for everyone who grows up here. If you want to go to a four-year university or if you want a job in a bigger range of fields, you have to leave. You're kind of forced away from your home. Um, And Mm -hmm. I feel like there's kind of a, just a troop of sort of half heartbroken people all over the country who grew up here and feel really attached to it, but haven't been able to come back because of all sorts of reasons. So um, I just kind of became increasingly homesick during about a decade. And I would come back in the summers and I would come back and I would work at Tom's place and I would work at Yamatani in the summers. Um, And then I'd go back to wherever I was in school and I went to grad school in Minnesota and I would do the same thing. I'd write research grants for, to the university that were all to come back here. (laughs) 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 They're like, well, okay, again, off you go. And I'd come back and I would do research here. I would, uh, what types of research would you, yeah. What type, so what did you exactly actually research when you were here? So my book, um, I'll give a little bit of background on the book um, since it it has a ton of research. It is a memoir. It's called Miracle Country, and it's about growing up in the Eastern Sierra. And it kind of brings my family story um, and my own my own life here. With it combines it with history of the state and um, the way people, different people, the way different people have lived in the Eastern Sierra, and. also the water transfer and some of the stuff going on with the climate, both historically and now with climate change. So I had to do a ton of research. I spent a lot of time in the archives of the Eastern California Museum and Independence. And it was also just really helpful to just be around, um, mostly hanging out in Bishop, talking to people, meeting, meeting people who were still ranching or people who were 
live making their making a, a livelihood on tourism or living in different ways here and also talking to tourists and also having known people in Los Angeles and kind of coming and going from Los Angeles and getting a better a more nuanced idea of the relationship between here and uh, the places that kind of shape the culture of the Eastern Sierra through tourism and through resource relationships. So there was a lot of archival research. There was also a ton of requesting old newspaper microfilms from libraries mm. and then kind of pouring over those to look for just like quotes about some of the really early days of the water transfer and then other things about life in Los Angeles in the 1800s. And um, yeah, it was really fun to, to do the research. I also traveled all over the state. I have a section on Hetch Hetchy and um, that, that reservoir there. And um, so, yeah, it was, there was tons of travel. There was tons of archival and library research. And then there was a lot of just hanging out around town and talking to people. So did you intend when you were writing these research grants to get you back home, was the intention at that time to write um, Miracle Country? Yeah, I I knew that I wanted to write about home from before I went to, I went to graduate school for writing in Minnesota and I knew before I went that I wanted to write about home. Um, and I, I thought I was going to write this kind of, if you've read Ian Fraser's book, Great Plains, it's very, uh, he's not he's not present in it as a narrator that much. It's really a portrait of a place. And I thought that's what I was going to write. And my professors kept saying like, you have such a deep relationship to, to this place. You need to put, this is a story about you and your family, as well as a story about the place. And that's how your reader is going to be able to connect to it. And so it ended up becoming a memoir, even though it's probably, it, it, it functions like an essay. It's, it's a, it's kind of like the way my thinking and my relationship to my home has changed over time because of being away and because of learning more about it and because of learning more about kind of the West at large and California and drought and, and everything, everything like that. It definitely is, um, as history, it's a sweeping tale, right? It's, and mm -hmm. portions of it are just saga. Um, but what I really like about this book, and, and we should mention for our listeners, the book is called Miracle Country. Um, and it comes out this summer, right? I think it's July is the release date. Comes out July 14th. Yep. You can pre-order it now, but it'll be, it'll be in stores and shipped July 14th. Awesome. So exciting. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it, it, it really reads to my mind as both like a personal memoir and also just like a memoir of place, you know, and that, and that the compelling that you have this balance of a compelling memoir of a personal level and then a compelling story about the space as well. And balance those two things, um, is, is really interesting and fascinating. It makes it interesting to read from my perspective. Um, can, can we ask you back up a little bit and ask you about your path to becoming a writer? Yeah. Um, well, I, I wanted to be an airplane pilot when I was really a small kid, which is, <laughs> no, is your influence from your dad, right? Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot about flight in the book because my dad was a pilot. He was a, he was a pilot of small experimental aircraft at, he, he moved to the Eastern Sierra when he was in his early twenties and he pumped gas at the, at the Bishop airport. And he lived in this burned down restaurant out in the rocking K that, um, he could live in it for, for free. The, the owner was like, yeah, it's a burned shell live in it. And so he basically squatted in this restaurant <laughs> that had like no windows. Everything was burnt, blown out by the fire. And he would ride his bike to the airport and in Bishop and pump gas. Cause he wanted to be a pilot and he, and he became a pilot and then he became a hot air balloon pilot and he, he, <laughs> 
did that in Mammoth Meadow for years. So if you ever saw in the, in the 90s or the 80s, a hot air balloon hovering over Mammoth, that was him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I wanted to be an airplane pilot. And I, uh, I was really bad at mechanical stuff. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I became a writer instead. Um, I also, I always just loved reading and writing. So I, I always wanted to be a writer and I struggled with fiction. I had a hard time coming up with plot. And then I discovered mm-hmm. this thing called nonfiction and memoir and creative nonfiction, which is really people, people ask me, what's a memoir exactly? Like it, 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 when you're, how do you write a memoir when you're in your twenties? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, uh, it's basically, um, it, it uses all the same literary techniques as a novel. There's character, there's setting, um, there's, there's attention paid to the writing, but it's basically grounded in truth and the things that happen are verified and fact check. And there's a, there's a 500 source bibliography that'll be on my website. So, um, I loved the genre of literary nonfiction. Um, and I just loved taking ideas and thoughts and, and images and, and things from my own life and kind of and expanding them into a bigger story and bringing in history and bringing in other lives and getting really beyond myself, but sort of starting with my own memories and my own experience. Many of which were fairly unique and dramatic. And one of the key things that you reference in this memoir is, is what's locally known I'm learning is the Swall Meadows fire. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and your experience through that, your family's experience? Yeah. So the book opens with the, what what was called the round fire, which happened in February of 2015, and it started in paradise and with a, I believe it was suspected to be a downed power line and some some of our high winter winds that we get, and it was right in the heart of the California drought. So, whereas Swell Meadows would often be under multiple feet of snow, right. Swell Meadows, the neighborhood where I grew up, um, up overlooking Bishop, sitting on the Sierra Nevada mountains at about seven thousand feet, should have been under snow, wasn't. Uh, was really dry, and these really really strong winds just sandblasting people's windshield when they're trying to drive down the grade. Um, it just pushed this fire into swall. And so that's the opening of the book is I was in the middle of writing this and I was then all of a sudden I'm flying home because my neighborhood is burned down and my neighbor's houses and burned down and we're, we're sitting in the ash and sifting for any little fragment that might've survived. Um, and my brother wants to go and see our house and save our house. And so he's like trying to at night trying to drive on a back road from Tom's place back into over the over Wheeler crest back into swall and his truck right. gets stuck and he's like out getting out of his truck and running from the fire. And so it was a really um, dramatic time for everybody. It was really emotional. I don't think I've ever seen that many. I was like 20 in my early twenties at the time. I don't think I've ever seen that many adults crying right. <laughs> just like unabashedly. <laughs> Yeah, I I live in Crowley, so just you know a little bit north of Swall Meadows, and I I remember, you know that that night really well, and how fast that fire got big, you know, really increased at such a qu- quick rate, and the the level of fear and sadness that every you know everybody felt because you know everybody knew the people who were affected by this, you know, yeah. who lost homes and yeah, it was, it's quite scary when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just something we all kind of live with in this area. The, the reality yeah. that that's gonna, in all of California and much mm-hmm. of the West. Right. 
and and you know it's also it, it's I kind of picked it up as a theme a little bit in your in your memoir. So you already talked about the rest the, the fire gutted restaurant that your dad lived in when he first moved here. You know, there's like little bits of like reference to fire and disaster throughout. And then also just the tensions, you know, you mentioned the, the water diversion, the water wars of the early 20th century um, and how that also creates a tension in this area that everyone kind of feels mm-hmm. and understands. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, I was kind of, I was, I was, I was chronicling loss because the personal loss is the loss of my mother who died when mm-hmm. I was 16. And, um, that kind of, it sort of took me from this sort of idyllic childhood, you know, roaming around in the, in the dirt and swell meadows and catching blue bellied lizards and stuff to, um, <laughs> yeah, it's like all I did. <laughs> That's why I'm a writer. I can't do skills. <laughs> so we went, it went from kind of this idyllic childhood to this place that <clears throat> we found really beautiful, this desert that kind of the rest of the world sort of looked at as empty and has treated as worthless, you know, using it as a dumping ground for industrial wastes, um, <clears throat> testing nuclear bombs here. Um, and But it was like this really kind of sacred, beautiful landscape when I was growing up. And then my mom died and it became, it felt empty and it felt like a bad place and I had to get out and I had to leave and go far away and be in the city. And um, it kind of in the process of being gone and being becoming homesick and starting to look more deeply into the place I had left behind, I started to see these bigger, more universal public losses um, that mirrored what had happened within my own family. And so, right. there, there. When you grow up here, there's there's a sense of loss over the water that just kind of it's still it, it, it still kind of permeates the community, even if you don't really know the story completely or you don't know all the details. I worked at Tom's Place in high school, and so I felt I, I understood that we needed people, we needed visitors, and a lot of them were really respectful and engaged with the area in a really good way. But I also felt a little bit weird, like we had this relationship to this big and powerful city. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it sort of had us in a headlock. Mm-hmm. And so the the book sort of takes, goes from my, my personal feelings of loss to, um, the bigger, the bigger community feelings of loss from the water to even before that, when the, the ranchers first came to the Valley and essentially exterminated the the Paiutes in Owens Valley. And that was a story that I didn't know at all until I started researching this book, that there was an actual death march and that the, that, that the people that were marched out of Owens Valley turned around and came back. And it was kind of an incredible story of resilience. And then they now, their descendants live in the Valley still in Owens Valley. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted the book to be sort of one of, of a a series of departures and returns and losses and um, kind of reclaiming uh, a deeper understanding and a relationship with a place that's, that's, full of, full of beauty and love, but also full of kind of sadness and danger. In a way, it's about coming back to live beside some of your hardest memories. Right. Mm-hmm. That definitely comes through. And I, I will say I learned a lot from that, those portions of the book where you talk about the Paiute history and the interaction with the settlers who were moving in and forcing them off of their land. And there's a lot there that I didn't know. And I grew up here too. Um, so I found that really, that resonated really deeply with me. 
Can you talk a little bit about your personal loss, your family? Like your parents just seem like characters out of Characterville, like really fascinating and adventurous people. Can you talk a little bit about your family? Yeah, well, a lot of you listening to this probably know my dad, Robert Atlas. <laughs> he's six foot eight, so he's hard to miss. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the local, he's the map guy. So he goes around from store to store, visitor center to visitor center, and he distributes maps, which he um, he distributes other people's maps. And then he, he prints his own, makes his own maps with Sierra Maps. And he and I did a little uh, recreation guidebook a couple years ago. And so um, it, it was basically 30 years of his knowledge, 30 plus years of his knowledge of the Eastern Sierra distilled into a book that I extracted mm. from his head and typed. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> um, he, so he has a really deep love for the area that he passed on to me. And, um, yeah, he, he's always just tried a bunch of weird different ways to live. He's, he ran a gym in downtown Bishop. He was a charter pilot for little flights when he worked at the airport, um, he ran a used car lot in downtown Bishop. He's just tried just absolutely everything possible to live here. That was his goal from his early twenties on. He wanted to live in this place. There was just something about it that he needed to be here. And, uh, my mom was a teacher who moved, she came from Michigan, but then she moved to Bear Valley in the middle of the Sierras and then eventually came across and got a teaching job in Levining when they had 30 or 40 students in their high school. Right. And there's, um, family stories of her cross-country skiing. She cross-country skied 18 miles over avalanche debris after a particularly rough winter to feed the class hamsters who were stranded in the school. So (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So, and in the book, I have a story of their first date where my mom takes my dad on a hike and it turns into a I think it was nine miles one way to this lake and he had no idea what he was in for, but that was just a typical, <laughs> a typical day for her <laughs> in the Eastern Sierra. So they both, yeah, they were both kind of extreme people and they, they met in playing in the summer symphony. Um, and he says that she was the only person who would walk around the Catholic church where the symphony practiced barefoot. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> And she's she is a renowned educator here in in the county, and we have our community schools named after her. Yeah. Um, so she's just it was an honor to have the opportunity to work from her and learn from her because she was so passionate about education. Yeah. I thought it was, I just, I just thought like, you know, my parents were great, but I was kind of jealous of reading of your upbringing (laughs) and all the fun you had and just kind of like the freedom that seemed to be there. Um, Can you talk about what it was like writing about your own family, knowing that it's going to be published for anyone to read? Yeah. Well, the good thing about writing this when I was in, I I wrote, um, I actually wrote some of this when I was in college. I wrote bits and pieces of this before I knew Mm. I would use, use any of it, um, in a book, um, when I was really in college. And then when, when I was in grad school in Minnesota, I was writing, but I wasn't really thinking about anybody ever reading it. Like I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write a book, but you kind of trick yourself at, you you don't, you're not like imagining people read. I'm not at least imagining people reading what I'm writing. And then afterwards you're kind of like, Oh my gosh, like what if I I told the world? (laughs) So there's still like some, some element of that, but my, my siblings and my dad have been really supportive. They've all read the book and they've all, they've all said they've give, they've signed off. In fact, a lot of it 
comes from interviews. A great deal of it comes from interviews, especially okay. with my with my dad. Hours and hours of asking him what it was like living in the Eastern Sierra in the mm-hmm. in the early '80s when he first moved here, and all of his crazy near hot air balloon crashes and that kind of stuff. <laughs> <his> other adventures. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then my sister too, I talked with her and I think with my sister, we all kind of flew off the handle in our own ways after my mom died. I was 16, my sister was 14 and my brother was 11. And so with both of them, I've talked at length about what it was like for them after she died when we were not really talking to each other at the time. We were kind of just like being nasty teenagers, but worse. So. Yeah. So we, we weren't really supporting each other and being there for each other at that time. And I think for me, at least being able to talk to them about it years later has sort of been a nice resolution to what was a really Mm -hmm. difficult time in, in all of our lives. Um, and they've, they were really generous to be so forthcoming. And my brother, my brother got into a lot of shenanigans locally. Um, he kind of became a troublemaker and I was worried about, how he would feel about that being in the book. And he's his response whenever I'm like, Are you sure I can put this in the book? He's like, whatever's going to sell books. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's really nice to have such a, I know it's not easy for all memoirists, but in this case, we really have put to rest a lot of the, a lot of the hard things. Um, or at least we're more, we're more, um, we're more together in how we talk and think about them now. Well, what I like about it is you don't shy away from some of those hard things, but you, you write about them, you articulate them in very careful and respectful ways. And then you also just relentlessly tie it back to place and to nature. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading was the description of the Sierra wave wind, um, as you were describing your, your dad building an airplane and flying around and, and like the challenges of it. So for many of our listeners who aren't in the area, or don't know the area very well, the Sierra wave is kind of a local phenomenon that's often, you know, is wind coming across the the Sierra and creates cloud formations that are beautiful and Mm -hmm. stunning and often photographed. Can you talk a little bit about for our listeners, what Sierra wave wind is and just like a little bit about your dad's flying around in it and some of the challenges? Yeah. So the Sierra wave is this wind phenomenon where we have these strong winds coming off the Pacific ocean and they race up the West side of the, of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they just come screaming over the East, over the crest, um, which is we, we in the Eastern Sierra, um, the high Sierra, we are on the Eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains, the leeward side, we're in the rain shadow of this huge mountain range, which means we get really like the, the, the mountains scrape all the moisture out of the wind and out of the clouds and storms that come off the Pacific. So we're, we're in a desert because of that. It's called a rain shadow. And the winds just come racing over the peaks and it's really strong. It's essentially like a horizontal tornado. They crash over the top of the mountains and they roll and it creates this, this crazy, um, these, these kind of beautiful lenticular clouds. They look like stacked pillows which everybody in the area is very familiar with. <laughs> We've actually had a, a number in the last week. Um, yep. And, and they're a real hazard for pilots. So 
in the 50s, they actually researched, and this, there's a section about this in the book, where they, they actually studied this, this wave phenomenon. It happens on the lee side of all big mountain ranges or most big mountain ranges. And they, they had these glider pilots who were using this wind phenomenon to set altitude records. And so gliders are engineless airplanes, and they're getting towed by a bigger airplane and then eventually just let go. And then they can kind of just fly on their own using the wind. And so there's all these crazy stories of people's planes getting ripped apart by this, by this wind phenomenon because the wind is just so strong. It would just shred. It would shred a glider, and then the pilot would have to parachute to the ground um, when, when the experiments went wrong. And so my dad, as a young pilot in the, in the 80s, accidentally flew in it a few times before he really understood <laughs> how intense it was. <laughs> so he has stories of just being like not in control of the plane at all. And the plane is just doing its own thing and the mountains are there and he's like going towards the mountains. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> I love the way you described it. Cause you bring all that out in the writing, but being local here, if you don't realize that is happening up in those altitudes, all you look up is see these stunning clouds and think, Oh, it's so beautiful and so peaceful. But in reality, it it really is quite dangerous. So I, yeah, I it can be, that can be dead calm on the Valley floor and ridiculously windy up high, or it can be ridiculously <laughs> windy on the Valley floor too, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, this wild is place. true. <laughs> <laughs> so I also wanted to hit on this other aspect. You just talked about the rain shadow and, um, one of the most famous authors um, of this area is Mary Austin, who wrote a book called Land of Little Rain. And you reference her periodically throughout the memoir. Can you talk about why you brought her voice in and what your relationship is to her, like author to author? Yeah. So Mary Austin is, um, she was writing, she lived in independence while she wrote her most famous book, which is land of little rain, which came out, I believe in 1903. And it's a, it's an essay collection about her life in the deserts of California. And she was just kind of bewitched by this landscape. Um, she was just kind of, she came from the Midwest and she just kind of had this relationship with the desert and she stayed in the desert for much of the rest of her life. She ended up moving to move to New Mexico. She had to leave after the water left and the economy just crashed. She had to leave the Eastern Sierra. Um, but she's, she's just a really interesting voice to bring in to have somebody else talking about the area from another era. And she is really, mm. her prose is really beautiful. And I think she just did a really great job of writing about the kind of presence that the desert can have and the kind of relationship that the people that live close to it um, have with it. It's sort of the harshness, the, the beauty and also the sort of dangerous harshness um, that sort of, I think I tried to sort of draw throughout the entire book. Yeah. She's also a fierce advocate for the area, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit, this is your first memoir. Um, <laughs> I say that like there's another memoir coming. Um, who, who is the ideal reader in your mind for this book and what do you want them to take away? Well, I think every, every writer would like everyone to read their book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess the ideal reader, I, I really do think everyone, because I would like, I was really happy when a publisher, so my publisher is Algonquin Books, and they are based in, in um, North Carolina and New York, New York City. So they have no, some of them have a relationship to deserts and the West and California, but they're not, um, they're not they're not based there and they saw an appeal 
in this book for readers beyond local, which I love sharing this with local people. It's really, really fun. And like, I, I feel like there's a level of understanding and uh, a lot of inside jokes in that, in that sense for the locals all throughout this book. Right. Um, but it's also really cool that my publisher imagined a readership that was national. And mm-hmm. I think that's because uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to, I wanted to sort of enrich the way people think about their homes and also place in general, whether it's your permanent home or your home for a while, um, just the way we inhabit place. Uh, because in the process of writing the book, that's really what changed for me. I really wanted to share the journey of developing a deeper relationship with my home and with place and with landscape. Um, with the reader that I went through in the seven year process of writing this book. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I wanted them. So I guess like, a, uh, um, and not necessarily just a deeper appreciation, but also just, just a more nuanced relationship, like co- sort of seeing the layers of a place, seeing into its history, seeing kind of having a really wrestling with the difficult parts of its history and thinking about how we can live in places. There's a, there's a, there's a Wallace Stegner quote that I can't recall right off the top of my head, but he often talks about deeply lived in places and how um, if we want to protect the places that we love, especially going forward with a really uncertain future and a perilous climate future, we have to have kind of a deep, we need to live in them deeply and we need to understand and love them and kind of all of their all of their problems as well as their beauty and the things that we like about living there. And that's what I really wanted to do, I think was sort of contribute to that conversation about how we can deeply live in places and therein protect those places. Well, well I sure. Oh, go ahead, Christopher. <laughs> I was going to say, it definitely comes across in the writing and, and also just, you know, as a librarian and a reader for decades now, congratulations on getting with Algonquin who, who's known for putting out literary fiction and nonfiction. You're in a really good company with that, that publisher. So great job. Yeah. Thank you. They've been really great. It's a, it's such a, an excellent, uh, book to read and um, so well researched and we hope all of our listeners will pick up a copy when it comes out on you said July 14th yep July 14th miracle country so Kendra two quick one quick question before I ask what you're to share with our readers what you're reading now but do you are you working on another book um right I, now? I yes I am I think yeah I am it's it's a very unformed. Um, I guess all I can say about it is I've gotten very into researching Vikings. That's- oh, okay. <laughs> so this is going to be very different then. <laughs> you know, I, ha- I feel like there's no way that all the themes that I'm interested in won't reappear in different ways. <laughs> and uh, I-, I know that it's going to be uh, like... I- I know that it's, I'm, I'm playing around with, I've been reading these Icelandic sagas and, uh, they're, they're really, they're really fun. They're written in the 13th century about Iceland. And it's kind of these, like, it's kind of like rural drama, a lot of it. <laughs> so I've been going around with like writing the saga of Bishop, <laughs> like, follow, follow my brother around for a weekend or something. <laughs> oh, I love it. So that's, that's just something I'm having fun with, but yeah, I'm sure it'll be different. It'll be different, but it, I think it will be, um, hopefully still relevant. 
Well, you'll you'll keep us posted, and when when that one gets published, we'll we'll have you back again. But right. <laughs> until then, would you please share with with our readers what are you, besides the Icelandic stories? Are you reading anything else right now? Yeah, so I just finished another memoir about California that I really enjoyed, and it's called Home Baked. It's by Alia Vols. Um, it's also a debut memoir, and. I learned a lot about another part of California that I I learned a lot about urban California. I learned about San Francisco history. So it tells the story of her parents, um, another, uh, another very eccentric family. Her parents ran what turned out to be one of the first medical cannabis companies out of San Francisco, Mm. but it started very grassroots with her, with her, it stayed grassroots and it started with her mom essentially distributing these brownies um, out of her daughter's stroller (laughs) up and down the streets of San Francisco's. And so, but it was so fascinating to me because I really like learning about subcultures and I I love learning about like, um, like kind of aspects of history that aren't covered necessarily like underground parts of history. And it did a great job of just walking you through San Francisco of the seventies and the art scene. And then it it even goes through the AIDS epidemic and kind of just the sort of potential and excitement and hope. And then those hopes sort of being dashed and complicated of San Francisco and California in the, in the seventies. So, and it's really impressively researched. Um, it's a really great work of history as well as memoir. So that's called home baked by Alia Vols. And that's, well, that's a new book, right? Yeah, it just came out in uh, April. Awesome. Okay, well, well, we'll put a reference to that in our show notes, as, um, as well as Miracle Country, um, for so our uh, listeners can go to that link and find where they can get a copy. And we appreciate you being with us today so much, Kendra. Thank you. It's yeah, been great so talking with you. Yeah, yeah, this was great. It's really, we're really excited for your book to come out and we're going to push it in the library a lot. I know you want to sell copies, but we're going to have (laughs) library copies too. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) I love libraries. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us today for this episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast. Please remember if you've enjoyed this podcast, enjoy listening, please subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate that. You can find us on Instagram at O2Starved and on our website at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. And so please leave us a comment. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're doing during this uh, COVID-19 sheltering in place. We hope you are safe and healthy, and we will see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Starved. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.